Welcome back to the Baker McKenzie Asia-Pacific Risk and Crisis Management Podcast Series, Managing Business Compliance Issues in the New Normal. In this series of podcasts, we are exploring the challenges and risks encountered by businesses amidst the constantly changing legal and regulatory landscape. Our Baker McKenzie team of speakers have been sharing their insights around the various legal and compliance issues as illustrated via a factual scenario arising from a fraudulent transaction. In episode 1, our speakers discuss ways of effectively communicating with banks to minimize and contain risk exposures upon discovery of fraud. In episode 2, our speakers discuss options and key steps to take once the money has been transferred from the receiving bank's account. The episode focuses on the key elements required for a successful recovery from fraudsters from a common law as well as a civil law perspective. Remedy and compensation through insurance was also discussed. Episode 3 of the series addressed key questions around communications with authorities following a fraudulent transaction. Taking into account the civil and common law jurisdictions across Asia-Pacific, our speakers covered issues around whether there are any legal obligations to report such incidents and which regulatory authorities need to be contacted. Today, we will be looking at an internal issue managing disciplinary actions and investigations. My name is Celeste Ang, a partner in Big McKenzie, and I'm based in Singapore. I'm joined today by my fellow partners, Jonathan Isaacs and Roberta Chan, who are based in Hong Kong. Jonathan leads our China employment practice, and Roberta is a disputes partner who specializes in employee investigations. So just a quick recap of the factual scenario. An email is received by the finance department, seemingly from the general manager, stating that a $5 million payment that is due to be made today to a supplier needs to be sent to a different bank account of the supplier. The finance team sends a response to the GM informing the GM that in accordance with company policy, a written confirmation is needed from the supplier to change the payment details, and the GM and the CFO must jointly sign a form which includes personal details of the GM and CFO to change the details in the, in the system. The GM then forwards an email with the required client confirmation and asks for the relevant form to be sent to her. The GM says that given that she's working remotely from home, she can't sign the form in person and instead sends the form with a signature on it. The CFO is shown the GM's email and based on those, the CFO signs the form as well. The money is then transferred. Two days later, the supplier calls up asking where its $5 million is. The supplier denies having approved the change of bank account. The finance team contacts the GM who says that she did not send any of the emails for the change in supplier payment details or the form authorizing the change. So in this scenario, on the face of it, it appears that the CFO and the finance team are entirely innocent and the fraud is perpetrated wholly by a third party. However, the bottom line is that the company has lost millions of dollars. From the company's perspective, some level of investigations would have to be carried out to ascertain if there are any insiders who may be at fault, and if so, what disciplinary actions may be taken. So let's first start off with what an employer may legally do in the interim to investigate the matter and perhaps put the employees on administration leave or suspension. Um, Jonathan, would you like to talk through the considerations when undertaking investigations on employees generally? Sure, thanks Celeste. 
Uh, generally, there are two main issues from the employment law perspective that companies need to consider when undertaking an investigation. The first one is to what extent the company can access and monitor information on company devices and personal devices that may contain relevant evidence. Um, in most jurisdictions, and in particular in China, the company can access anything on a company device or company systems like company email systems uh, without too much restrictions from the data privacy perspective because the employees are not deemed to have that much uh, reasonable expectation of privacy when uh, using company devices and systems. However, the situation is different for personal devices and that's becoming increasingly an issue and difficulty for conducting investigations in China in particular, because a lot more communications now are done uh, using personal devices and using personal communication systems like WeChat. Um, with regards to those personal devices, while the company can ask the employee to hand over those devices, the employee has no duty to do so and the company can't really force the employee to hand over that device. Uh, we had one case where the company was able to successfully get the personal device uh, and the employee to voluntarily hand it over uh, because the company basically took the employee by surprise and just suddenly asked the employee for the device and the employee didn't just hand it over. But where the employee is more well prepared and says, no, you have no right uh, to force me to hand over that device, uh, the company doesn't really have any basis to compel the employee to hand that over. So that makes investigations uh, relatively difficult. Uh, the other consideration from the employment law perspective is to what extent can the company suspend the employer, put them on administrative leave? And this varies by jurisdiction. In China, uh, the, the law is silent on the ability to put an employee on administrative leave, but the general understanding is a company can do so as long as it keeps paying the employee full salary. And in that type of situation, the employee doesn't really have any damages that you could sue the company for. Thanks, Jonathan. So, you know, I think it does look like, you know, for employee investigations, it, it is always important to consider the jurisdictions in which such empl employee investigations or interim actions in that sense, you know, are taken. Because the employment laws, as well as the data privacy laws, would vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So from a Singapore law perspective, for example, in terms of access to employee data, generally, if there, you know, is a sufficiently robust set of data access policies, an employer should be able to access employee data residing on company devices, you know, as you mentioned, you know, for purposes of investigations. Um, you know, in Singapore, we do also have exceptions under the Singapore Personal Data Protection Act for employee-related investigations. And in terms of, you know, administrative um, actions or interim actions, say for suspension for purposes of due inquiry, you know, for which there are limitations under the Singapore Employment Act, an employer would generally be able to put an employee on administrative leave, uh, fully paid, uh, provided that you know such leave is not overly prolonged, um, and the investigations are efficiently carried out. And you know these are largely a matter of contract from a simple law perspective. Uh, maybe you know moving over to Roberta, you know what about you know Hong Kong? Thanks, Celeste. So uh, I think similar to Singapore, uh, under Hong Kong law, assuming that uh, the employer has um, a rather robust and broad um, um, company data access and privacy policies, employers generally should have um, access to employee data. 
However, employers in Hong Kong have to be held accountable to the employee for any privacy risk when monitoring data concerning personal privacy and have to comply with the personal data privacy ordinance to guard against data privacy breach. So in particular, according to the data uh, protection principle under Hong Kong privacy um, ordinance, employees must consider the concept of fair collection of personal data. The collection of personal data should be lawful and fair. Employers also have to be entirely open about employee monitoring policy they adopt. Employees should also be able to assess the company's policies and practices in relation to personal data and be informed of the kind of personal data held and the main purpose of why such personal data are collected. So employers also have to be ensured that there is a legitimate business purpose or interest for employee monitoring and balance it against the privacy risks involved in such monitoring. So um, generally speaking, assessing to employee data for discipline investigation should be held as a legitimate purpose or reason. An employer should only suspend the employee in very limited circumstances for a period of not more than 14 days without notice or payment in lieu from employment, according to Section 11 of the Employment Ordinance in Hong Kong, such as a suspension of an employee during an investigation or disciplinary measure which may involve serious misconduct and, if proven, justify summary dismissal. Or where suspension is pending the outcome of criminal proceedings, provided that if the criminal proceedings are not concluded within the 14 days period, such a suspension may be extended to the conclusion of the criminal proceedings. Anything falling short may give rise to a claim for constructive dismissal against the employer. If further actions are required after the 14 days of statutory suspension, it is always advisable for the employer to put the employee under pay leave to prevent a claim of constructive dismissal by the Hong Kong employee. Thank you. So I think a question that is commonly asked you know, is whether a due inquiry is required before taking any disciplinary action or before dismissing an employee. Um, so, Jonathan, would you like to just discuss this with maybe reference to the scenario we have um, and the general position in China? Yeah, so in China, the answer is pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, there's absolutely no requirement to provide a due inquiry or due process requirement when conducting or when implementing disciplinary actions against employees in China. So, for example, unlike in some other jurisdictions, there's no right for the employee to respond to the allegations. Uh, they don't have any right to an employee representative to represent the viewpoint during the investigation. And there's no particular step or process that needs to be followed before you can carry out those disciplinary actions. In China, the key issue is basically, do you have enough evidence of the alleged misconduct? Um, that's number one. And number two, is your misconduct either based on a written set of company rules that you have in place, or do you have evidence of a serious dereliction of duty uh, or graft that caused the company major harm? Um, so again, in China, the focus isn't really on process, it's more on substance and what evidence that you have. So in this particular case, for example, is there enough evidence that for example, the CFO was seriously derelict in his duties or didn't follow proper procedures that led to this major harm for the company. 
Um, so that would be the major focus in this particular example. Back to you, Celeste. Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. So, um, Roberta, what about, you know, Hong Kong? You know, perhaps you can cover Hong Kong and give everybody sort of an overview of what the lay of the land is in, in APEC. Sure, Celeste. So, under Hong Kong law, due inquiry is recommended for dismissal as the employer bears the burden of showing cause under Section 9 of the Employment Ordinance for summary dismissal. So, in a recent Hong Kong case law, um, 2019, it was held by the Court of First Instance that the burden is on the employer to justify summary dismissal under Section 9 of the Employment Ordinance. And in order to prove habitual neglect of duty in that case, the ne neglect of duties must be substantial and habitual. It will be easier to rely on this ground where the employee disregards prior warnings of the employer. So this, therefore, this case is actually a suggestion that due inquiry before dismissal is actually recommended. Although there is no statutory requirement of such, no requirement for due inquiry, but it is generally the view that, you know, um, due inquiry before summary dismissal is recommended. Any such procedure for handling employee misconduct or underperformance is often governed by employee contract or employee handbook in companies. So a consistent set of uh, recommended elements of due inquiry should be included in large organizations to impose a speedy and fair process to determine what disciplinary actions are appropriate to be imposed on the employees. So perhaps now I should talk about briefly on um, the general position regarding disciplinary actions or employee investigation in some of the APEC countries. For instance, under J Japan law, there are not any specific regulations or requirements in Japan regarding disciplinary action or investigation. However, as we understand, it is quite difficult to justify a unilateral termination of employment by an employee in Japan, by an employer in Japan. So in practice, even if there is quite a strong ground to proceed with a unilateral dismissal, it is not common, uncommon in uh, Japan to give a final opportunity for the employee to voluntarily resign before proceeding with formal disciplinary action. Um, so taking another uh, jurisdiction like Philippines as an example, under Philippines law in general, an employer may terminate an employee's employment only if there is a legal, i.e. just or authorized cause for termination and it has followed the procedures required for the cause of termination. The Labor Code under Philippines law requires not only that an employee be dismissed for a just or authorized cause, but also that he or she be dismissed only after the observance of the appropriate procedure due process by the employer. So in the case of employment termination for a just cause, the Labor Code requires the employer to serve a written notice on the employee, informing the employee of the charges against him or her, and giving the employee a reasonable opportunity within which to explain his or her sign of event, i.e. at least five calendar days to submit the explanation. So after serving the notice, the employer should give the employee another further opportunity to be heard through a hearing or conference so that the employee can answer the charges with the assistance of counsel, if he or she so desires. If the employer 
decide to dismiss the employee, it should serve another written notice on the employee to inform the employee of its decision to dismiss him or her. So in the case of employment uh, termination for an authorized cause, the employer should serve a written notice of termination on each affected employee and to the appropriate regional or field office um, at least one month before the intended effective day of termination. The notice should specify the authorized course and the effective date of termination. So these are the examples um, from APEC countries which differ from the common law other countries like Hong Kong or PRC. Thank you. So I think for Singapore, you know, I mean, it's really under Section 14 of the Singapore Employment Act. It is, you know, provided that an employer may, after due inquiry, dismiss uh, without notice an employee that's employed by him, you know, on grounds of, of misconduct. Um, but I would say generally in Singapore, you know, you know, as you mentioned, we do recommend um, that if you if an employer is proceeding for dismissal for cause or misconduct, you know, a due inquiry is recommended. Because ultimately, the employer would bear the burden of establishing cause for dismissal if an employee brings a wrongful dismissal claim. However, you know, I think one point I want to mention and, you know, which Roberta, you have also sort of highlighted is that if an employer has in place investigation or disciplinary policies, which are of a contractual, which are of contractual effect, in that they are incorporated in the employment contracts of the employees, then the employer would be contractually bound to comply with those policies. So I think the takeaway point here is that if a company wishes to have disciplinary policies in place, it is important to ensure that such policies do not overly restrict or hamper the company if and when the company needs to take disciplinary actions swiftly. We have seen, you know, certainly in many cases, you know, that companies trip over their own, own policies or are unnecessarily hampered by their own policies with overly prescriptive procedures. So, Roberta, I understand that, you know, there is an interesting case in Hong Kong on disciplinary procedures and perhaps you might want to just talk about that. Yeah, sure, Celeste. So, um, in fact, there's a Hong Kong, recent Hong Kong case law called Lam Chun Choi versus Standard Chartered Bank Hong Kong uh, in 2016. The High Court of Hong Kong held that if the disciplinary actions form part of the employment contract, then the right of the employer to dismiss the employee may be restricted. So in that case, the claimant was dismissed by the bank for poor performance. The bank had in place Hong Kong employee dis uh, discipline procedure, which formed part of the employment contract between the claimant and the bank. Um, the gist was um, the, the um, dis discipline procedure was in just a set of provisions concerning the disciplinary procedure and sanctions for deficiency in the conduct or performance of the bank's employees. The claimant brought a claim in the Labour Tribunal first, arguing that the bank was in breach of the employment contract as the procedure had not been followed prior to his dismissal. The Labour Tribunal in Hong Kong dismissed the original claim and considered that the procedure would only apply in cases of conduct-related performance, but not performance in general. The claimant then appealed to the High Court of Hong Kong. The High Court reviewed the procedure in detail and found that the disciplinary procedures were actually intended to cover both conduct-related performance and performance in general. The High Court therefore held that the tribunal was wrong in holding that the code would not apply to poor performance in general. The High Court then held that the tribunal had failed to consider, one, 
whether the bank was obliged to investigate into the matter for discipline purposes. Second, if it was found that the bank was obliged to but did not so investigate, whether that still entitled the bank to dismiss the claimant. And third, whether the bank was obliged to proceed to a disciplinary hearing before dismissing the claimant. The High Court followed, uh, allowed the appeal and remitted the case to the tribunal for a new hearing. So, as a general guide, disciplinary procedure should not be prescriptive or form part of the employment contract so that employers maintain flexibility in relation to their application. Obviously, it really depends on you know, the employer's choices as to whether to make the disciplinary procedure as a compulsory measures or procedure to follow or make or provide flexibility and not to form part of the employment contract. Mm, yeah, so I think you know it is important when we are structuring these procedures, um, you know, to do so carefully and to think through, you know, how it should be sort of put in place. So this is probably a good segue, um, and you know, perhaps Jonathan, do you have any insights or recommendations as to how such processes or procedures should be structured if a company, you know, in fact, you know, does, they do actually want to put something in place? Or if, you know, are you aware of any peculiar requirements under any sets of laws um, in APEC? Sure. So for China, like I said before, there are no procedural requirements for implementing an investigation or a disciplinary process. So we generally don't recommend implementing overly onerous procedures because there's no requirement to have any type of procedures at all in the investigation or disciplinary process. The key in terms of policies would be having a clear set of policies that set out what kinds of misconduct may lead to summary dismissal. Because if you have a clear set of policies in this regard, it is easier to terminate for summary dismissal. Uh, because in China, there's no general ground of misconduct that allows you to terminate. Uh, the relevant grounds would be a serious violation of company rules for which you need to have those company rules in place uh, or a serious dereliction of duty or graft leading to serious harm to the company. Uh, so it's clear to have those rules, disciplinary rules in place. Um, in order for those to be legally effective, uh, those disciplinary rules have to go through an employee consultation process that basically consists of employees offering their opinions on the policy, you, the company then consulting with the company union or employee representatives about the policy. And then finally, and most importantly, publicizing that policy to all the employees. Uh, when that consultation process is done, then the company can rely uh, on those uh, disciplinary rules and policies. Um, one un interesting uh, point to note uh, in another jurisdiction, in this case in uh, Indonesia, when carrying out uh, disciplinary actions or HR-related investigations. Such investigation has to be done uh, by an Indonesian national. Um, and so they would generally have to be done by somebody, an Indonesian, a local Indonesian national within uh, your company office there. So unlike in other jurisdictions, you cannot fly in somebody, for example, from your regional head office in Singapore or Hong Kong to conduct those types of HR measures. If you don't have somebody within your own office who's capable of handling that investigation in Indonesia, a power of attorney may be needed uh, to appoint a third party who would also have to be an Indonesian national 
um, if somebody, if you do use somebody who's not an Indonesian national to conduct these types of investigations, uh, they may be subject to detention or other penalties. So back to you, Celeste. That's interesting. Thanks, Jonathan. So I think that's probably, you know, all the time that we have for this session. Um, so, you know, thank you, Jonathan and Roberta, for sharing your insights on the issues around disciplinary actions and investigations. And thank you so much, you know, everyone for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of our Asia-Pacific Risk and Crisis Management podcast series, Managing Business Compliance Issues in the New Normal. Thank you.